0: If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9, allow me to get to it myself here. And we begin reading this morning at verse 13 on the sixth seal. We looked at the fifth seal last week about the locusts that were Turned loose, now we see this is quite similar, actually, to the fifth seal in some ways. So we'll read through the end of the chapter. Revelation 9, beginning at verse 13. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been bound, prepared, excuse me, for the four, so the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them, and thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three plagues a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or of their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Amen. May God bless his word. Let's pray heavenly father we thank you we thank you for the scriptures and lord again we ask you to be with us and we do pray that you would open our hearts and minds to your word lord there's uh, difficulty understanding the symbolism and the fulfillment and even the application in these passages but we ask you to be with us and bless us that by your holy spirit you would apply your word to our hearts and i do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations, the thoughts of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. All right, so chapter 9, the sixth angel. As John sees in his vision, the sixth angel sounds. Remember there were seven angels that were given trumpets. The seventh angel actually sounds later. But the sixth angel sounded. And John says, I heard one voice from the four horns of the altar. That's literally what it, what it is, not just a voice. It actually has the word one there in the original. I heard one voice from the four horns of the altar, which is before God, saying. So this voice comes from the, the altar. If you keep in mind, the altar of incense is what's being pictured here. If you're familiar with the furniture in the temple or in the tabernacle, if you went through the, you know, you have the, the uh, holy place and then you have the most holy The holy place is about twice the size of the most. There were two rooms in the sanctuary part, and if you went in, the first thing you would notice is there would be the uh, seven branch candlestick that was there. That had the we say candlestick from the King James, but oil lamps were there, and the priest each week were to go in and refill the oil and to light the lamps. And so you'd go in and it would be lit by this this beautiful uh, oil lamp or lamps shining. And remember, that was in the symbolism in the opening chapter when Jesus said that the, uh, the oil lamps are, are the churches. Anyways, we'd go in, and then you would also notice there would be a table, and on the table would be the showbread, and that was uh, symbolic of table fellowship with the Lord. We have our showbread here in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. But then you would notice there's another veil. That's the veil that only the high priest could go through, And in there was the most holy place, and that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. It had the two cherubim cherubim, uh, that covered the the Ark, and on the top of the box where had originally been placed the Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod that budded, and a pot with manna that they had collected toward the end of the Exodus sojourn and placed there. So those were in there. Later on, some of those items were missing, uh, but that's what it intended to have in it that's the the law and then the symbol of the God feeding his people and then Aaron's rod that budded meaning that his his staff that produced blossoms and leaves and and almonds on it but on top of it was the mercy seat and that's where the two cherubim you know their wings were spread over and the mercy seat that was the place where the priest would sprinkle the blood once a year on the day of atonement in the autumn uh, at least by our reckoning. If you're down south, it wouldn't be the autumn. But uh, in the northern hemisphere, in, in the autumn, when the Day of Atonement was done, that's where the blood was sprinkled, and that was the place of propitiation. That was uh, in Greek. That's called the Helasterion. That word Helasterion. It actually, if you listen closely, you can almost hear the root because it is the root of the English word hilarious, meaning satisfied, you know, satisfied laughter, but it means the place of satisfaction, and that's the Greek word uh, that's used. And actually when it speaks of Christ being the propitiation for our sins, that is the atoning sacrifice, it refers to Jesus as the hilasterion. Jesus is the mercy seat. He's where you go to find mercy. Okay, so that's what was inside. Right at that veil, that second veil going into the Holy of Holies, there was a golden altar, that was the altar of incense that we've actually seen referenced several times in what we've been looking at. And it says the four horns, that is, you have this altar, there's fire placed in it, and then you place the incense on top of that. And it, it, in the corners, there were little points that came up, and those were referred to as the four horns of the altar. And so uh, the priest would go in there and offer the incense. That's if you remember in the New Testament when Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, Went in, he went in to offer incense, and that is, he would go in, not into the Holy of Holies, but into the holy place where the lampstands were and the table of showbread, and then he would offer incense every day, and that was symbolic of the worship and prayers of God's people. And we saw that in the last chapter, that the prayers of the saints were offered with incense in reference to the intercessory work of Christ, where our prayers are offered together. So that's the place where the incense was offered symbolically in Revelation. That's the place where the prayers of the saints as incense, mixed with the uh, intercessory work of Christ, were offered and are offered, and it was accepted of God. That's important for us to know. Our prayers, your prayers, they're like fragrant incense to God. That is, that he's very pleased with it when you pray in Christ. And so we, we recognize, you know, we realize we're sinners trusting in God's mercy and grace, but we shouldn't think that God's not interested in hearing our prayers, okay? We struggle, we fail, we come crawl. Sometimes that's why I love the Lord today. It's like, thank you, Lord, made it finally chance to kind of regroup my thinking, be with God's people, hear his word, uh, get, kind of re, get the batteries recharged and get focused and then go back out and hopefully do better in the, the days ahead. So when we come to God to worship, he's pleased with it in Christ. When we come by faith in the Lord Jesus, we pray in his name. So here we notice that this place where the prayers of the saints have been offered and the intercessory work of Christ, that's where this voice comes from. So we're the place where God is worshipped, where he's pleased, and where our prayers and the intercessory work of Christ joined together. He makes our prayers efficacious or effectual. A voice comes from there. It's the voice of God, very clearly. One voice came from the four horns of the altar. It wasn't a whole bunch of voices. One voice uh, saying to the sixth angel which had the trumpet, Release the four angels who were bound upon the great river Euphrates. So he's told to release them, to loose them. Uh, They were bound there and were told that he loosed the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year. So these are the four. John's seeing this as a vision of things that were going to happen. We look at this, all well, are these things, yet future, or these things that have happened historically. Most commentators believe these are things that have happened in history that we're going to read about that were set forth in John's day as future events. Some have said, well, some of this was fulfilled, or maybe was absolutely fulfilled, but there might yet be an ongoing uh, fulfillment or at least an application, clearly, of these events that we're going to read about in just a moment. So these angels had been prepared for a specific time. There was nothing here that was uh, haphazard or all of a sudden. Oh, we got to switch to Plan B. Okay. Um, I remember talking to a friend years ago. He wanted to know why I didn't hold to all the modern dispensationalist. Pre-trib rapture stuff, etc. And um, I said, well, because there's no Plan B in Scripture. The nations are converted by the gospel. It's not like once the church is raptured, then there'll be some other gospel preached or something. You know, that things will shift. The gospel is going to preach, be preached. The church is going to be built up until the last day when Christ returns in glory. There are things that are going to happen before that, but the message is the same. It's repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So these angels had been prepared specifically for an hour and a day and a month and a year. This is not a good thing, because the next things we're told. Remember, the other locusts, they were told they they weren't allowed to kill anybody, just torment men. And we talked about the application of that, at least I'm persuaded. It's probably a reference to the Dark Ages, all the things that came about, where you had all the sacramentalism, the ritualism, the priestcraft, all the monks and various religious orders that were turned loose, and all the foolishness. Uh, that Luther spoke up against it bound men's consciences and made them absolutely miserable, with no real hope of heaven. The yeah, idea that well, if you do enough penance, if you have enough merit, uh, and if the church then you know, it, you know gives to you some indulgences or something, maybe you'll make it to heaven. Um, and if you can get the priest there right when you're dying and get last rites, then perhaps you can go to heaven. But if you were to die without the sacraments, then you're just going to go to hell. Um, horrible teachings that have nothing to do with the Bible. As I mentioned, the Reformation went forth in power when the scriptures were translated. First into, from the original languages in German, in English, in French, in Dutch, in Italian, and all the various translations that came forth. And when people read God's word, they found Christ. They found the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't find rituals. They didn't find uh, the Pope. They didn't find prayers to the saints and Mary. As a matter of fact, they found that those things are uh, very clearly taught against often. So these angels are released. But we saw that the locusts, they couldn't hurt men. They could just torment them. And they stung them. We actually use that term sometimes. We say a person was stung in their conscience. That term is used, or a similar idea, in Acts when the men, when they heard the gospel, their consciences were touched. And that's when they said to Peter and the others, they said, Men and brethren, what must we do? And Peter said, uh, Repent and believe in the the name of, and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is upon the authority of his name, um, and you'll receive remission of sins. And so... As Peter preached, they heard they were stung in their consciences. But that was a good sting. That was when it brought them to repentance. The locusts don't bring anyone to repentance. They just torment them. These four angels, or messengers, when they're released, notice it so that they should kill the third of men. Things have changed now. The, The judgments that have fallen have not affected repentance. We're going to see at the end of this chapter that even this judgment doesn't really affect repentance. But these angels are released so that they should kill the third of men. And the number of the army of cavalry or the horsemen was two myriads of myriads. That works out to 200 million. That's a huge, vast number. Some said, when was there ever an army that size on the face of the earth? It's questionable. Some try to say, generally speaking, that this could be a reference to the spread of Islam, and it very well could have a, an application in that, perhaps even a fulfillment. They say this is perhaps a picture of from the Euphrates River um, where you have this, the second wave of Islam after about the 10th century or the 9th century. You begin to see Islam spreading in a, in a different way through the various tribes on the eastern part where you had the, uh, the Turks and the Seleucids uh, and the Tartars and others that came with their false teachings uh, and also their violence. There literally were a lot of people killed in those days. But I think if we're looking at a symbolic book, the, the real death that's at, at concern here is the false gospels that bring about the death of men's souls, their spirits. Uh, they kill a third of the men, and the number of the army, I say, 200 million. It's like, what are we talking about here? Well, this could be a reference simply to false teachings being spread throughout the earth. Whatever it is, it's a very dark time. And verse 17 says, And thus I saw the horses in the vision, and those who sat upon them. And he describes them having breastplates of fiery red and hyacinth blue and sulfur yellow. They look like the fires of hell when they come out. Uh, And here they are, they're, they're riding forth. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions meaning that they were swift and violent. And out of their mouths came forth fire and smoke and brimstone. Now, some have said, well, could this be a prophetic reference to the artillery that that was used first by the Islamic armies? You know, That's why the city of Constantinople felt, which is today Istanbul, is because when the uh, Turks arrived at the gates of Constantinople, they had huge cannons, and the walls of the city had protected the city for centuries, but they just blew them apart. They had artillery. And someone said, this could be a reference to that. And it could be. Uh, but generally, someone said, no, there's something else going on here. And I'm persuaded there is something else going on. Uh, we're told that it comes out of their mouths. Now, you could say, well, that's perhaps, you know, when it refers to the tails of the horses, you know, as they were drawing the cannons, it would look like the tail of a serpent. It would have a mouth. They actually used to make cannons that would have, like, where the boar was, it would have like an animal's head on it. Some of the early artillery pieces did. So is John seeing that? Well, I think he's seeing something even worse. He's seeing the deadly lies of false gospels here, whether of Islam or of the, the Middle Age Ages with the false teachings of the Roman church um, that began to come forth and kill men. And I mean kill them in a way for eternal death. What comes out of their mouth was fire and brimstone um, and smoke, smoke obscures, fire. There's nothing saving in this. You know, sometimes you'll hear like, oh, yeah, he was a real fire and brimstone preacher. It's like, okay, people need to know there is a real hell. And if they don't repent, that's where they're headed. Uh, And sometimes, as uh, Jude says, some you have to save with fear, snatching them out of the fire Some people need to hear about hell, and they need to hear about it as where they're going if they don't repent. Uh, Other people, he said, say with compassion, that is with gentleness. So some people need to be shaken because they're complacent in their sins, they're quite comfortable in sinning against God, and they need to be awakened and come under conviction. Well, these men, there's nothing about repentance. As a matter of fact, we see after this judgment falls, it does not affect repentance in those who aren't killed. They don't learn any lessons from it. But what comes out of their mouths, that is, of of these horses and obviously their riders, is fire and smoke and brimstone. By these three things, these three plagues, a third of the men were killed from the fire and from the smoke and from the brimstone that came out from their mouths. I think he's talking here about false doctrines and false teachings. And if you look at Islam, if you look at Romanism, you look at all the cults both ancient and modern it's what comes out of their mouths that kill people because it's a denial of christ john says in first john that the spirit of antichrist is those who come and don't bring the doctrine of christ come in the flesh with them. he said this is a deceiver and an antichrist and he says in third john don't even receive such into your home so he's, i think that we're seeing a reference here to false teachings going forth Now, could this be a reference to the spread of Islam? Well, Islam is a false gospel. It could very well be that, because it did take over about a third of the Roman Empire, and we see here a third of the men were killed. And if you look at the people that were uh, brought under Islam by the sword, many were killed, others were induced to blaspheme and deny Christ in order to preserve their lives. You know, if you look at the Islamic countries or the countries that are under Islam in the Middle East and North Africa and in parts of Europe... Generally, those people at one time were professed Christians, and you know, Islam. As some have said, Islam is really nothing more than a Christian heresy, although it's really it's twisted enough to be a different religion. Uh, at its foundation, it came as a reaction to the idolatry of Christians. It was after the Second Council of Nicaea when idolatry was sanctioned in the church. And they said it's okay to do that and they set up images in the churches. We're talking about the 10th century now uh, with the spread of Islam and its ferociousness very much against idolatry. But as this judgment fell, a third of the men were killed either physically or brought under a false gospel and damned for eternity. And then he says in verse 19, for their authority is in their mouths. That's where their power is. And in their tails, that is coming and going, okay, they're deadly, for their tails are similar to serpents, having heads, and by these they do hurt. And actually the Greek word is they do injustice. There's nothing right in what they do. Uh, So their tails were like serpents, and they would bite is the idea, and they were deadly. By these they, they do injustice. And so we see this, this plague that comes out in the sixth seal, whether it's the spread of Islam. By the way, most commentators, at least the non-dispensations, the older ones, whether in the Reformation or afterwards, they generally say this It seems to be a picture of Islam spreading, the horsemen coming out, etc. It seems to be this vast army spreading this false gospel through the sword and through fire. And all they have to offer is... Uh, fire and smoke and brimstone. There's no life in any of it. <clears throat> so we see this plague comes on and it's it's devastating and it's terrible. But then we see the rest of men who were not killed by these plagues did not repent from the works of their hands. So this, the vast army of destruction loosed from being bound at the river Euphrates, they go forth with swiftness as an army on horseback. They destroy a third of mankind by their hellish mouths uh, that send forth fire, smoke and brimstone that kill men. And as I said, some believe this represents the armies of the Turks or the Ottomans who came from uh, that area and brought death, both physical and spiritual, by their swords uh, and their Mohammedan teaching in their onslaught and until they were stopped at Vienna in the 1600s. More likely, as I said, in my opinion, these may be symbolic of the vast army of spiritual Babylon. I fault, because that's on the Euphrates, by the way. Uh, The false teachers and preachers of works righteousness and threats of hell and damnation that ultimately fail to ever bring anyone to true saving repentance, because it's not mixed with the gospel. That's the idea. There's no hope given. There are those who preach, you know, like say Jude says it's okay to, some yeah, not just okay, some it's necessary. You got to save them out of the fire. But you don't just tell them about hell. You tell them about Jesus. You tell them about Christ who died for sinners and rose again. So that we could be forgiven and saved. But if all you preach is damnation and then works righteousness, that if you become good or better, maybe God will have mercy on you, you're not helping them, and they're never going to really come to true repentance. So as we see at the conclusion of this chapter, that these that, that whatever comes out of their mouth, it does not affect repentance. Apart from the quickening grace of God, by the regenerating work of God the Holy Spirit, giving God's elect ones in Christ true repentance and faith. Men not only ignore the threat of judgment, as we've seen, but we also see in this chapter, in their stupidity and in their spiritual deadness and sin, they will not repent even when the actual threatened judgments themselves begin to fall on them. So calamity, you know, we often think like, well, if God judges our nation, then people will repent. Really? Look at the nations that were destroyed at the end of World War II. A lot of, you know, look at Japan, look at Germany. There are Christians in those countries, but not very many. And we see all the problems they have. Why aren't those countries godly? They suffered almost complete destruction and they were conquered militarily. They had horrible things happen to them. Because horrible things don't bring about any repentance unless God the Holy Spirit gives it. It's not just calamity. Calamity, apart from the Holy Spirit's work, is just a judgment unto death. So, it should be noted that the fire and the smoke and the brimstone came out of the mouths of this vast army that was turned loose. What comes forth from the mouth of this infernal host is their false doctrines that reek of hell. The carnal weapons of the nations can only kill the body, but Jesus said, don't fear the one that can kill your body only. Fear him who, after he's killed, can cast you into fire into the fires of, of eternity of an eternal hell he said, yea fear him then a little bit later he told the disciples fear not it's the father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom the idea is know who god is uh, whether it you know these false teachings these false gospels of rome islam or apostate evangelicalism and the cults and the christ denying cults as john warned about both ancient and modern they kill men's souls while offering them paradise because they do it on the basis of works, and no man is going to be justified by works. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when what comes out of the mouth of this army is fire and smoke and them that's because they have hell in their hearts. They have hellish hearts. In Matthew 12:34, Jesus warned the Pharisees, and he said, "Oh, generation of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So Christ tells us that what comes out of the mouth shows what's in the heart. Where John, through his prophecies, receives warning of a vast, or receives this warning and gives it, of a vast army let loose upon fallen mankind, the Apostle Paul speaks of a great apostasy of falling away that should occur, quote, in the last times. The two warnings could be referring, I believe, to the same thing. Deadly teaching that wrecks and racks the visible church. Paul said in 1 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 1, he says, But the Spirit saith expressly that in the last time some shall fall away from the faith, giving themselves to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, through hypocrisy having their own conscience seared over as with a burning iron. Then he names two distinctions... To, to know what he's talking about, as how you know. Here's the, the two marks of this apostasy forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God has created to be used with thanksgiving. Some have said the forbidding to marry is just the doing away with marriage, but others have said, no, it's very clear. It's saying forbidding to marriage, and this would fall under the heading of an enforced celibacy that we see in the Church of Rome and somewhat in the Eastern Orthodox Church also. They do allow their priests to marry in the Eastern Church, but not if they're going to be a bishop. If they're going to be over the other pastors, they don't allow that. So if you have a priest that is going to become a bishop, his wife has to go into a convent usually. It's very pernicious. Or she, you know, you just don't get married because you want to be a bishop. Um, but forbidding to marry, we see all the, the plague. If you look at all the things that have been discovered about the uh child molestation that has taken place by members of the Church of Rome's clergy, any other institution that had that much crime going on in it would be declared an outlaw organization and be banned from civilized society. If you go back and read about the Reformers and, and during uh, the time of England's Reformation and others when the, k- the kings tore down the monasteries, they said they're just they're places of ungodliness and wickedness. that Yeah, you know, and... Um, it used to be in the middle ages it's not an uncommon thing i'm not making this up you can go check it out in wikipedia probably will have it but priests often were required to keep a concubine with them so they'd leave the women and children uh all the children alone uh they said you you know if you're going to be our priest you're going to have to take a a, a quasi wife remember a concubine is a woman it's kind of a wife but without the right of inheritance so it wasn't a legal marriage done in the church but said you're going to have to have a woman you know a wife of sorts because we've had too many priests that weren't faithful celibacy is not taught in the bible it actually says in scripture that if a man desires the office of overseer he desires a good work and says he must be the husband of one wife deacons it says must be the husband of one wife so you know you see just the opposite of what's taught in the bible We see this time and again. Jesus said, call no man on earth your father, for one is your father in heaven. He's not talking about denying our earthly human fathers, but he's saying that's religious titles. He said you're not to do this. So what do they call themselves? They call, well, call him father, specifically forbidden by the Lord. Uh, A bishop or an overseer, meaning a pastor, should be a married man. Now, if someone's young and not yet married, we don't pr- forbid them the office, but generally the idea is that they should be married. But if someone was to enforce celibacy and say, you cannot be married if you're going to be a pastor, they just fell under what Paul's warning about, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods. The idea you know, he couldn't eat fish on Fridays for a long time, for centuries. Uh, he says, which God has created to be used with thanksgiving, that is, foods for the faithful, uh, that they... Uh, uh, that they have known the truth. For every creature of God is good, and there is nothing to be rejected, being taken with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. And so, you know, Christians can eat foods. Now the unclean and clean things of the ceremonies or ceremonial law of the Old Testament uh, don't apply to the Christians. We're told if you give thanks to God, it's okay. And so the food laws that pertain to Israel are not enforced in the Christian church. Those who try to enforce them fall under this um, description of apostasy. So, what does all this mean? Okay, there's some dark sayings here. I'm trying to make some application. Really, not anti-Catholic here. And what I'm saying, a Roman Catholic. The Roman Catholic people are wonderful people. The teachings of the Church of Rome are horrible, and it very much seems to be the the kingdom of Antichrist and all the you know pretending to be uh, the, the friends of Christ. And yet, if you look at the teachings, it's like, wait a minute, something's wrong here. The sacramentalism and and, uh, the exaltation of the Pope and the false titles that are given. So what does all this mean? Well, first of all, we shouldn't be surprised when the powers of hell are permitted by God to break forth among mankind. In punishment for their sins. You know, we look at our country, we go, what's going to happen to the United States? Well, if it doesn't repent, it's going to cease to exist. Okay, I said to somebody, you better hope it's the Russians and not the Chinese. But, you know, it'll be whoever God determines. But... Nations that get as wicked as the United States has gotten and allowed culturally the things going on, the perversion, all this trans garbage and cross-dressing and just ugly filth, all this kind of stuff, it's usually a pretty clear indication that God's judgment is coming swift and hard. And nations that allow this stuff and defend it, particularly the murder of over 65 million babies, they lose their national sovereignty. God will preserve his people. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ will be preserved. The good old United States might even emerge from it sound and safe and repentant at the end of the process. Look at Russia today and what it was for over 70 years under communism. God humbled them. And yet they went right back to orthodoxy and their idols and sacramentalism, although there are some... It does seem there are some gospel preachers in the Orthodox Church. It seems there are men that emphasize faith in Jesus Christ. And will it God be their judge? But a lot of their rituals and the things, they really need a reformation. They almost got one back in the 1500s. Cyril Lucre, the patriarch of Constantinople, he actually was sending a Greek priests to England to be educated and to be taught the Reformed faith. And things were going well, but because he... Taught against the sacramentalism and the priestcraft and all those things, he died of poisoning. They killed him because they um, didn't like the fact that he was too chummy with the Protestants. And so they went back to, and here we see that at the end of this section too, they did not repent of their uh, sorceries. And actually the the word there has to do with drugs or poisonings, their murders, etc., So we shouldn't be surprised, though, when we see the powers of darkness overwhelm. If if something should happen, if in our country we lose our national sovereignty, hold fast to Christ and trust him and do what is before you in accordance with God's word. And if you have to lay down your life for the cause of Christ, be prepared to do so. When it says they didn't repent of their murders, all of you think, who exactly were they murdering? Most likely those who feared God, okay? But also the wicked kill each other, too. So, clearly again, we're here reminded, secondly, that God is one and in control of history. He's the one that controls history. These four angels were released by God's permission. When the judgment is executed by the hand of the wicked, uh, Habakkuk, in his prophecy, he questioned, Lord, why are you using the wicked to judge your own people? Because God was pleased to do so. You know, we might look and think like, Oh, well, the United States will never fall. Beloved, I'm not looking forward to that. I'm just saying, if you know history, don't be surprised if it happens. And when it happens, it's going to happen quick. We have traders right now in control of large sections of our federal government that I personally think would sell us out in a moment if they haven't already. And we find that people can be bought, and we see all kinds of things going on. It's like, what is happening in this country? There's strange things. Um, we see the, the influence and power. And it's like God does use foreign nations to judge even his own people. And sometimes those foreign nations are not godly. And he'll then judge those nations that he used to judge his own people like he did Babylon. God used them to conquer Judah. And when they were done, the Babylonians gave praise to their gods and said, Oh, look, our, our God, whatever his name is, he conquered Yahweh's people. So God said, Nope. And boom, where's Babylon today? Gone. All right. But God does use the wicked to judge even his people. Thirdly, we find no matter how great the numbers of our foes may be, we don't need to be afraid. Whatever is going on, we can trust in God. Christ said upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He didn't say upon this rock, I will build certain countries and they'll just endure no matter how wicked they get. They'll just keep on enduring Christ has a church. He chastens his own people. And he brings them to repentance. But when we're faced with a vast army, and we don't know what to do, we remember what uh, Jehoshaphat did. In 2 Chronicles 20, verse 12, he saw the army that had come against him, and it was huge. And he prayed, and he said, O our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do. The second chronicles 20 verse 12 good memory verse by the way neither know we what to, we don't know what to do how do we stop this we see this today this onslaught of wickedness how do we stop this what can we do we see people protesting we people people speaking up we take it to the ballot box you know we need to take it more to our, our prayer room we said we don't know what to do but then he adds this he said we have no might against this great company that cometh against us neither know we what to do but our eyes are upon thee and god wiped out their enemies he gave them victory josh knew lord we don't know how to fight this this is more than we can do this is beyond our ability or strength or our wisdom but our eyes are upon you nothing's too great for god to do you want to see the united states repent of its sins you need to pray that voice came from the altar where the prayers were offered so we need to pray. In 2 Kings at chapter 6 verse 14, we're told, Therefore he sent he thither horses and chariots and a great host, and they came by night and compassed the city about. Okay, this is during the days of Elisha, 2 Kings chapter 6, okay, the, the army of Syria came and they uh, surrounded the city of Samaria. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, an host, an army, compassed the city, both with horses and chairs. So he goes out and he looks and he sees the whole city surrounded by their enemies, way more than they could handle. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? And he answered, this is what Elisha said to his servant, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. Second Kings chapter 6, verse 16. They that be with us are more than they that be with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. So God, he prays, Lord, open his eyes. So he opens his eyes, and he can see in the spiritual realm now, and he sees, he sees the army of Syria all around. And then he looks around on the hills, and he sees this vast, way bigger army surrounding them and around Elisha. God opened his eyes and he realized, the ones that are with us are more than those who are with them. And when they came down to him, Elisha prayed unto the Lord and said, Smite this people, I pray thee, with blindness, that is this army of the Syrians. And he smote them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. And it goes on a very interesting story in history that happened. But Elisha prayed that God would open his eyes. We need to be praying that too. Lord, we see a lot of scary stuff going on. We see the wicked. It looks like 200 million have come against God's people and they're killing and all kinds of bad things. Open our eyes so that we can see your hand at work. So that we can recognize that we're in your hands. Fourthly, we should respond in repentance when we see God's judgments come about. We see at the end of this chapter that didn't happen. And that was wrong. When there are adverse judgments that fall, times of chastening, it should bring about repentance. If you remember when Jesus gave the Great Commission, everyone knows the part, go into all the world and preach the gospel, etc., which is true, and that's what we are to do. But in Luke chapter 24, it's a little bit different. At a different time, Jesus said, uh, this is Luke twenty-four forty-six. Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ, three things, to suffer secondly and to rise from the dead was necessary christ had to suffer and die and rise from the dead and thirdly that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at jerusalem so repentance is to be preached as part of the gospel they need to be told turn from your wickedness get rid of your idolatry in our culture it would be quit looking at porn quit looking at wicked stuff quit doing things you shouldn't be doing that's idolatry it's just pleasing to God repentance is what's necessary repent of your attitudes repent of your works turn away from such things that only comes about by the gift of the Holy Spirit repentance is God's gift to his people that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem and he told them and you are witnesses of these things so we need to recognize that the response the proper response of God's judgments, or to God's judgments, ought to be repentance, most assuredly in God's people. Fifthly we see that idolatry brings damnation and judgment. We saw in Psalm 115 where it describes them, the same description that John gives. That he says in verse uh, nine excuse me, twenty, that the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands. Part of those works would be making of idols. Uh, that they should not worship demons. No, when men worship false gods, when they make idols, images, when they have their own, quote, religion, it's demonic. Paul said in uh, First Timothy, that passage we read from chapter 4, that they'll be given over to doctrines of devils or demons and seducing spirits. There are spiritual forces at work in the creation of these cults and false teachings that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, and stone, and wood. They didn't repent. Some have said, you know, when the Turks came against the Eastern Empire and destroyed it, the Roman Empire had divided into two sections, the Eastern Empire and the Western Empire. The Eastern Empire, its capital was Constantinople. It was named after Constantine. And it ruled over Turkey and all the North Africa and the Middle East. And when the... um, Turks came, or the Muslims. In the beginning, they wiped all that out. North Africa used to be solidly Christian. North Africa today is under the thraldom of Islam, and it has been for many, many centuries. What happened in the Eastern Churches? What happened in the Western Churches? You know, Islam came up uh, through North Africa and Spain. Started, it was stopped at the Battle of Tours in France. Uh, otherwise, Europe probably would have fallen to Islam. You think, well, did men repent? Well, not right away. They sure didn't. They just went back to all their idolatry and and their wickedness. And this seems to be what he's describing here. They had all their idols. And he describes them as which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And as David said in the Psalms 115, that those who make them are like unto them. It's also in Psalm 135, verse 18. In 1 John 5, 21, the last thing the apostle John said to his readers was, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. We have a tendency toward idolatry. Some would say, well, I don't worship any idols. I don't have pictures of Jesus in my house or statues or things like that. Well, you can have idolatry in different forms. One, you can put your own opinions in your own self and make an idol out of yourself. But whether images or rituals or men or money or whatever it is that men put before God and put their confidence in we must not allow to happen in our lives our trust has to be in God otherwise we're in violation of the first and second commandment and of that we need to repent we need true repentance sixthly eternal judgments won't affect true repentance we saw that I want to mention that only the Spirit of God working through the call of the gospel can do that. Because Jesus said you're to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins. So if all you have coming out of your mouth is fire and smoke and brimstone, that's not going to help anybody. If all you're doing, if you have a ministry of condemnation, that's not going to help them. Now, people need to know if you don't repent, yes, you will go to hell. And we know the Holy Spirit will apply that through the gospel. We need to also let them know there is hope in Jesus Christ. Repentance is a gift of God. In Acts 5.31, the apostle said, Him, Jesus Christ, hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and savior for to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. Note that the two things go together, repentance and forgiveness. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it asks the question, What is repentance unto life? I think it's a really good answer these brothers wrote several centuries ago. Repentance unto life is a saving grace, that is, it's a gift from God, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. You know, God says in his word, uh, as David said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. If we will, they will get all the sin out of our lives. Israel was told to get rid of their, their uh, Baals and their ashtaroths, okay? They had to get rid of all their, their false images and ideals. Uh, Ezekiel, when he went in, he saw the elders of Israel and he went through the wall and he saw that they were, in the inner chamber, they were offering incense to all types of filthy images. And it was a vision, but he was showing that in their hearts, as Jesus rebuked the Pharisees, he said, outwardly you appear righteous unto men, but inwardly you're full of corruption. They weren't dealing with their sin. They hadn't really repented. They just knew if they looked the part, people would think they were righteous. And they thought they were righteous, too. They were very pleased with themselves. So we see the conclusion in this, this judgment falls. It's a horrible judgment. It's nightmarish in its appearance. But it doesn't affect repentance in men's hearts, because the only thing that can affect repentance is the gospel. And in this case, these men and their, their, or whatever these, these monsters were that come forth, uh, they have fire and smoke and brimstone. But there's no forgiveness of sins in their message. And with their mouths, they kill people because they're preaching false gospels. May God give us grace and deliver us from all such wickedness and help us to really recognize. We need to repent, but we really need to understand and receive the forgiveness of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would apply your word to our hearts. Lord, help us to know that when your judgments fall upon wicked nations, that in wrath you do remember mercy. Give us grace to repent truly, evangelically, in turning away from sin and turning to you, Lord, turning to your Son, Jesus Christ. Forgive us our sins, cleanse our hearts, fill us with your Spirit, and grant to us the joy of salvation. For we ask all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.